Karim Sirajuddin here. Thank you for tuning in. Please visit NurHuman.com to learn more about how I provide personal, spiritual, and relationship counsel and growth. Don't forget to visit CoffeeWithKareem.com to see the latest news and updates about this podcast. Please generously donate and help sponsor this show to keep on going at Patreon.com slash CoffeeWithKareem. That's Patreon.com slash CoffeeWithKareem. Welcome to another episode of Coffee with Kareem. Today I have the esteemed guest, Dr. Nafisa Sikandari. She is the director and founder of MentalHealthForMuslims.com. She is currently a licensed clinician practicing in California and Arizona. And she started Muslims for Mental Health with Sister Husay Majeddadi with the hopes of providing information about mental health issues that is both clinically supported and Islamically sound. Dr. Nafisa, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Can you tell us more about what when you decided to start Muslims for Mental Health? I mean, what was kind of the aha moment or perhaps the amalgamation of experiences and observations throughout your life that made you go, I need to do this? Well, I graduated with my um, doctorate in 2008. And by 2009, I was getting very frustrated doing my pre-doc and post-doc and working with Muslims and just seeing such a need, but not a lot of Muslims wanting to go to therapy or get help. So um, my cousin Jose and I started mentalhealthformuslims.com back in 2009, just so that we can make mental health available for our community, knowing that they're not going to, the majority of them are not going to come to um, get services directly from us. Um, she was working at the time with the Muslim community just uh, as an advocate and just doing speeches and presentations and working with a lot of Muslims. And she was getting bombarded with people looking for free advice, um, but again, refusing to get mental health services. I knew there was a lot of need and not a lot of people were willing to actually come in and get the help. So we wanted to normalize therapy and mental illness within our community. Um, we also wanted to educate the community about the common mental health issues and provide them with the resources needed to help themselves, even if they never came in for services. Um, in the beginning, when we were writing our articles, I made sure to put as much information and resources as possible in every article. So someone in a rural part of India or Pakistan or Saudi Arabia or somewhere else could get the information and be able to at least get started on helping themselves or at least have an understanding of what's going on with them. Um, so right now we have worldwide readership and get emails from all over the world asking for advice or help. Um, and although my license prohibits me from getting, giving services to people online or outside of the states that I'm licensed in, I can provide services and, I mean, uh, resources to people. Um, so that's, that was the main goal, just to reduce the stigma, make mental health easily available and accessible to the Muslim community and end the shame so that they can come in and get help because there's no need for people to suffer right. when there's so much help available. No, mashallah. I mean, I, I love the site and I encourage everyone to get on it and check it out. There's some great articles and resources up there. Mashallah. Now, can you, can you maybe define for us from your perspective, what does it mean uh, to have mental health? 
Well, you know what? I mean, I in the West, they've separated illness and health in so many different ways. If you have a, a heart issue, you have to go to a cardiologist. If you uh, have, there's no one person you can go to for all the issues. And we've basically separated the mind from the body and we've separated mental health from physical health. But in reality, it's all connected. When we have mental health and well-being, we have good physical health. But just like as the Hadith says, when even your toe hurts, your entire body feels it, correct? So we feel, I mean, it, there is no separation. We, we, we want to achieve good mental and physical well-being and, and balance and health. And um, we should treat all of it the same. We, we're not ashamed for having a cold or the flu or even cold sores or outbreaks or acne. But then we get so ashamed for having depression or anxiety. We need to stop separating all of it. It's all just one body going through something and we need to focus on it. Right. No, that's a great that's a great response. I mean, it does kind of build on this idea that as Muslims, we believe in this central uh, concept of Tawheed, right, which is to unify everything, unify God in our perception, unify creation, seeing how it's all interconnected. But then for some reason, that kind of stops when we think about the human being. Right, right. Is there a difference, in your opinion, between mental health and, um, let's say, uh, Islamic psychology? Or are they two sides to the same coin. Exactly what I was going to say. I believe they are two sides of the same coin. Um, when I read the Quran back in my 20s, mid-20s, I mean, really read it for understanding in English, of course, and, and really read the footnotes. When I finally finished the Quran, I left feeling that Allah is the ultimate psychologist. And this is when I was just taking psychology mm. classes. I was an undergrad, didn't know that much about psychology, but felt like, wow, this book is all about psychology. And the Quran is the original psych manual. Um, of course, wow. Allah would be the ultimate psychologist, right? He created us. He knows our psyche better than we do. And this is uh, And then recently, just the last couple of years, I, I learned about the early Muslims being so successful in treating mental illness over a thousand years ago, or almost a thousand years ago, a thousand, almost a thousand years before Freud and others popular, popularized um, psychology in the West. Almost a thousand years ago, when the majority of Europeans used to believe in demonic possessions and barbaric treatments of, men of the mentally ill, the Muslims were using aromatherapy and um, music therapy to treat mental illness. Um, the very first psych ward being in Baghdad, Iraq uh, in the 700s. Um, and physicians right. treating mental illness as a physiological disorder rather than demonic possessions. They were using medicine and food and herbs to treat mental illness. That is for that reason. I mean, I was just so in awe that this is our history, and yet the majority of us don't know that connection. The majority don't know that that we were the pioneers in treating mental illness way before it became popularized in the West. Right. Yeah. No, that's a great point. I think um, it's a powerful reminder that we have to know our history and we have to know what made the Islamic civilizations plural. Um, the the way that they were and uh, absolutely I mean and it's and it's not just like uh, we're we're talking about serious conditions too you know from my readings Muslims were treating PTSD and clinical depression and OCD and and, and these types of things back then right it wasn't just uh, 
kind of the lighter or milder uh, cases, right? They were really, really developing this science of, of ilm and nafs. And it's fascinating because once in a while, I mean, I'm sure you know this as, as a, a fellow in, in, in the field, you know, there is that taboo. And oftentimes when I would give seminars or maybe you felt the same thing, I've, I've always had a couple of people just come up and be like, brother, psychology is not Islamic. We don't need psychology. All you need is the Quran and Sunnah. And I'm like, well, the Quran and Sunnah is the very thing that made me want to study psychology. And it sounds like you, you have a similar uh, perspective. Exactly, exactly. And I think only when you read it with that level of understanding can you see the bigger picture that this is all psychology. It's all connected. And even our own prophet, peace be upon him, never told people you need to pray more because you're depressed or because you're anxious or because you have fears. He would send people food, certain foods to eat when they had certain ailments. He would... Um, tell them different things to do, whether it was exercise or, or even encourage them to come talk to him. I mean, why did he hold those council meetings? He would have people come in and talk to him about all kinds of problems. There was no shame. There was no stigma. But over time, we've become more shameful and, and talking about things that are bothering us, that are creating problems in our lives. Um, and that wasn't the case in the early stages of the, the birth of Islam. Right. Now, why do you think that's that's the case? Like, why do you think many, you know, Muslims today, um, they don't realize how ilm and nafs or the knowledge of the self or Islamic psychology is a part of our religion and has always been? Do you think it's just, you know, a lack of understanding their history, a lack of understanding the religion more holistically? Um, wh why do you think that's that's still uh, unknown to so many? Well, I know I'm from Afghanistan and I know like 20 years ago, at least, there was a, not a lot of Afghans that truly understood their religion. They just kind of did whatever their parents said. Nobody really read the Quran. And in fact, I was kind of shamed for reading it in English because it was supposed to be read in Arabic. Like I wasn't going to get any credit for reading it in English. Thankfully, that's changing now. And there's so much more information available out there and people are seeking the information. But but again, it's preaching to the choir. The people that probably need it the most are not interested in learning it at that level or understanding Islam. Um, a lot of them are okay with just uh, either reading the Quran in Arabic and not understand the language um, or just okay with just doing their five daily prayers and reading and fasting and reading the Quran and that's good enough for them. So they don't have that understanding of what is truly in those verses what is what is, why it's a guidance for us why it's there to shape every aspect of our lives um, that takes dedication and commitment but i also feel like maybe the stigma could be again lack of knowledge and awareness of our own history but maybe it's part of the colonization you know if um during that whole upheaval of being conquered and things are going on and you don't have the time to really sit there and reflect or um, grow and evolve mentally and emotionally. So there's so many different reasons. I feel like there's I don't think there's just one. Right, right, for sure. Yeah, I mean, because it, it, it is possible to be, let's say, um, religious or, you know, I would say externally religious, right? Like I'm fulfilling the rites and, and you know, I have all the Islamic garb and symbolism of, of what it means to identify, right, with Muslim. And yeah. the same person who might go to the mosque five, you know, five times a day and, and volunteer and everyone saying, oh, mashallah, you're such a good brother or sister. But that's the same person who has PTSD or who has is experiencing domestic abuse. I mean, how is it that it's become so compartmentalized in your opinion that you can have, you know, religious, um, 
you know, desire, so to speak, right? I want to be a good Muslim. But yet when it comes to these other aspects of the human condition, uh, we we become neglectful or we don't realize that, you know, part of being a good Muslim is also making sure you pick up your trash or that you don't, you know, um, allow domestic abuse to occur in your home or that you realize, you know, I may have uh, some some mental or emotional wounds here. Uh, this compartmentalization um, seems to be uh, pretty common. Would you say that's that's true? And and what what would you like to add to that? I think a lot of Muslims um, equate depression, anxiety, PTSD with lack of faith. And unfortunately, some imams encourage that. They say, "Well, you're not your faith is not strong enough." And it's not just Islam, because I've talked to Jews, I've talked to Christians, and a lot of their churches are, and temples are saying the same thing. You just need to go and pray more. Um, your imam is iman is not strong enough. You need to have um, more faith and more uh, resolve. And, you, and and if you pray enough and do the right thing, you'll everything's going to get better. But it's not. Mental illness is, I mean, it was treated as a physiological disorder back in the 700s. And yet now, all of a sudden, we have to pray more. And it's not recognized as something that needs to be treated. Um, there's a lot of fear. Um, and also of the fact that there's not enough Muslim mental health professionals. There's a lot of fear of actually opening up to somebody that's not Muslim and not, and, and not being understood. I mean, Islamophobia is keeping a lot of people from going to non-Muslims for therapy. Uh, but there's just, just just that whole, I think, underlying belief that if I'm having depression and anxiety, I'm just not religious enough. I mean, I would like to add that maybe another variable is the fact that many Muslim cultures are highly collective yeah. and focused on this communitarian aspect. So we know that, you know, how often have you heard, well, what will people say? Yeah. What will people think? And this, of course, allows us to... Um, enables us to to not want to talk about those things because it's like well what you know someone will find out that my dad used to you know beat me or my wife used to do this or or i have this going on and so that that plays a pretty uh, important variable too in the fact that many of these cultures are very collective and uh, we focus a lot on on social repertoire would you say that's uh, accurate it, it is that definitely and like i said the masjid sometimes are not doing a good enough job i mean somebody that can take every ounce of courage and go to an imam and say, I'm being molested or I'm being abused. My husband's beating me. And then they say, well, don't talk about it. That's just not, you know, we don't want to bring shame to the person, the perpetrator. We protect the perpetrators. Um, and I'm so glad that thankfully, I mean, around the country, a lot of imams are getting mental health training. They're getting, um, increasing their awareness and, and, and they are working against, I mean, going, towards more educating the community and guiding them in the right direction. But again, there's still a lot of people misguiding the community and just saying, keep it hush-hush, don't talk about it, just go home and pray more, be patient, um, you know, he'll change, pray for him, and that's just not enough. That's not good advice. Right. Do you have any um, case case stories or, or, or examples of, of when that happened? Many, way, way too many. Um, literally this one girl was, um, taken in by a family and she, her, her family, she was, she was a Christian, she converted and she wanted to live with a Muslim family just to kind of, you know, raise her awareness and increase her, her knowledge and, and faith, increase her faith. And she lived with this family and the husband of the family started molesting her. And when she reported it, not only did the husband accuse her, but the wife stood by him because they didn't want to attract any shame and, and a accept responsibility. Here she is as a brand new Muslim dealing with this situation and no one believes her. Um, 
and, and that it's devastating. Thankfully, she ended up, you know, still finding a husband and getting married, and he supported her. Um, and it was common knowledge that this man has this reputation, but nobody would talk about it and support her. La ilaha illallah. There's just too many. I can't even come up with one, but I've just had so many different ones that I've, that are similar that upsets me. And this is why in, in Arizona, I've teamed up with um, the social workers and other mental health professionals. And we did our first imam training last year, and we're working on doing more imam trainings, inshallah, in the future, um, because it's so important for the community members to really stop uh, perpetuating, protecting the perpetrators and keeping all this abuse and violence and the hush-hush and not wanting to address it and deal with it. Right. And and for me, when I hear that story, and I, I can I can relate, I mean, I have my own, but just, I think this is a great example of how sometimes our psychological reality becomes so distant from our religious or spiritual one, like the disconnect. Like, how could you really claim that you want to have taqwa in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that you are going to meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and be accountable for your choices and what you've done and then do something like that like lie about something so detrimental and so clearly haram just to keep your repertoire or, or, or shame I mean this is this is a uh, this is a very concerning reality for a lot of people yeah and it's a uh, and it's I think one of the reasons that it's a turn off and a lot of people are not feeling connected to the masjids anymore they're not feeling supported and that that is the main they're the front lines we need we need our moms, we need our scholars, we need our community leaders to support the mental health, uh, so, you know, just support us in, in providing those services, but also educating our community and encouraging them to speak up, encouraging them to get help, encouraging them to feel safe enough and protected when something like this comes up. But there's so many cultural baggage, I think, that we still um, deal with because so many of us are coming from so many different backgrounds. There's so much diversity within our religion. Um, and we can't assume just because somebody's going to the masjid praying five times a day that they are doing the right things, that they are, you know, following the, the religion to the letter. And so um, we can't assume any of that. Right. Now, some people might go, okay, doctor, I'm open to this mental health advocacy and therapy, but I don't know if I trust the Western models of psychology because those also have their own historical evolution and assumptions about the human condition and what's healthy, what's unhealthy, what's allowed, what's not allowed. So what would your advice be to to people who think like that? No, and I, I understand that this is uh, it is an issue. Um, I've had Muslims go to non-Muslim psychologists and therapists and come to me and saying, and, you know, everything that I was going through was blamed on Islam, for example. Um, there's a lot of bias. There's not enough preparation from the non-Muslim mental health professionals. Um, that that is a reality. That is true. And I've made it my goal, at least in Arizona, to go around. I've gone as far north as Flagstaff, all the way to Tucson, and presented to many different uh, psychologists, non-Muslim psychologists, and educated them about how to work with Muslims. Um, and they're all very interested. And it's not, you know, there is a Western bias towards some of the cultural beliefs and practices, but. Um, I would say just keep trying, you know, you have to keep talking to different mental health professionals and find one that works because just because the first one had that bias or, or didn't understand the religion or um, wasn't supportive doesn't mean you can't find another one. Just keep trying until you find the right fit. Um, even with non-Muslim mental health individuals that want to go get therapy, 
you can go find somebody that doesn't agree with your perspective at all, and they might shove their own beliefs and ideas onto you. But that doesn't—I mean, you would know at that point that that's not the right match for you, correct? Right. Um, and you would go find somebody else. I think we need to do the same thing. I mean, it is true there is a huge shortage of mental health Muslim mental health professionals. Um, that is changing, alhamdulillah. But in, in the meantime, keep talking to different people. Don't stop talking just because one person doesn't understand you. Right, right. So it's it's like any other major quote-unquote purchase you would make, driving a car, getting a car or a house. You have to test drive. You have to visit different sites. You have to feel it out. And the same thing is true with the therapeutic or counseling experience because – as you know, you know, one of the biggest variables of healing and growth is to feel that trust and connection with your professional helper. Would you say that's true? I think therapy is the most intimate relationship we can have at the professional uh, world. Uh, I mean, when you go to a doctor, you can go see them for five seconds and it doesn't really matter what kind of relationship you have. But you need to find the right therapist. I mean, even research has proven that it's not the person's background or, or knowledge or training. It's the connection you have with your patients that makes a difference in their healing. So um, that's the, the top. I mean, obviously, training and all that is important. But the top reason that people actually make progress is having that connection uh, with the individual. Um, so I would say shop around the same way, like you just said, go find somebody. And I even tell my own patients, you don't feel comfortable with me. I have no problem with you going and finding somebody else that, that you feel more comfortable with. Um, because that is an investment you're making in yourself. And that is the time that you're paying for. That is the time that you're in there and you're working on yourself. It has to be with the right person. Right. And in the end of the day, you want the person to get the help that they need. Right. That's that's part of, I think, the mentality or attitude of most professional helpers is, hey, as long as you're getting what you need, I don't care if it's with me, you know, or not. Just make sure you're getting it. Right. Don't stop is what I always say. I mean, don't just because you had the same thing, just because you had the first time you tasted ice cream, it was disgusting. That doesn't mean you should stop eating ice cream. You can go keep trying. Oh, my God. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I've met like maybe two people in my life, uh, Dr. Nafisa, that didn't like ice cream. It was like, wow, I've never met anyone who doesn't like ice cream. But I, I have two people now that I've met in my life. How about yourself? I've never met anybody, but I feel like those two people didn't give it a chance. They didn't go. <laughs> now, some some people might go, OK, that I like this. You know, this is good advice, Dr. Nafisa. But what but isn't a healthy soul also connected to a healthy mind i mean sometimes you know when we want to push mental health advocacy and education we might kind of go too far and be like you know it's not just about praying more and the religion has you know nothing to do with it some people might hear it like that like wait are you just telling me that this has nothing to do with my mental health and well-being like surely nurturing the soul does um help my my healthy mentality doesn't it i don't see the mental health and the soul being separate. I mean, I truly believe that we are spiritual beings on this planet having a human experience and not just humans having a spiritual experience. Our soul is connected at a very, I mean, we have to be true to our soul in order to have healthy, balanced uh, lives to have good mental health. Um, I think we're nothing without a soul. We need to work on being true to our soul because when our soul is at ease, we are healthy mentally as well as physically. When we go against our soul, when we go against who we are at the core, then we feel dis-ease. So I don't think we're separating psychology and, and spirituality at all. I think they all can be connected. I totally integrate both in my therapy. Um, there is no such thing. I mean, even science has discovered that the mind and the brain are separate. 
And if that is the case, then the mind is the soul. So when we're working on having a healthy mind and working on our mental health, we are keeping our soul healthy. Right, right. And in in classical text, in religion and and, and uh, philosophy, the 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 definition of the soul was was the rational faculty of the human being. And in the modern West, that's what we would ascribe to the mind as well. Uh, an interesting book to consider. There's a book called uh, Soul Machine, and it actually talks about the evolution of how the soul became the mind in Western discourse and how it actually was an attempt to replace this idea of the soul. Uh, because of what you know, Western historical um, evolution took place. Very interesting book. It's it's worth checking out. You can get it in audio form too, um, because it is a dense dense uh, book. But uh, just a little nerdy side note. Um, so, can you give us some some examples of how you do integrate Islamic values with? your Muslim clients or, or otherwise. I'd love to hear more examples of that. Well, you know, like we talked about mental health for Muslims, but when we first started initially, we were pioneers in using Islamic teachings and Quranic verses and all of our um, posts and articles to make psycho- psychological disorders just more palatable and easier to understand for the Muslim community. Because a lot of people, they might think, well, anxiety and depression, those are all Western concepts. That doesn't apply to me. That's not my thing. Uh, but in Islam, in the Quran, in the verses, in the Hadith, we, there's so much in there that's talked about um, that addresses those issues. So we do integrate it. Um, we normalize psychology for Muslims long before we even knew about our own Muslim, Islam's glorious past regarding mental health treatment. Um, and like I talked about before, I think uh, I do mention that our own prophet encouraged therapy and, and, and just talking about our problems and then taking certain foods, doing certain things in order for us to recover from our illness. Um, so if he didn't encourage us just to go pray more, why are we taking that upon ourselves that that's all we have for ourselves? There's so many resources, which I believe um, are from Allah. Those, those resources, I mean, the foods that we're coming to know that's, that's good for our mental health, the exercises that we're beginning to learn about that's good for our mental health. There's so many resources that we can integrate in our lives. Why would we deprive, deprive ourselves of all that um, just because of a faulty notion that if we just pray more, we'll be okay? Right. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. I mean, there are the Quran and the Sunnah literature is has resources for du'as for depression and anxiety and all those very things that people say, oh, this isn't part of our experience as Muslims, right? And then, of course, when you look at the seerah, you had companions of the Prophet go to him with issues, personal issues, marital issues, sexual issues, um, issues that they struggled with alcohol or zina. I mean, how many of us would go to our local imam and say, hey, I've been committing zina for the last five years, I need help, right? We we would shy away from that. But you had people who went to the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu to say the same exact thing, and he counseled them. And how is that different than you going to your mental health professional and doing the same thing? I mean, that that is the training that we're getting to encourage people to come in, so we can help them the same way that people in the past were helped, not only by our Prophet uh, but also by by other people that were beginning to learn how to communicate and and, and help out the community. So. This was something that was so common back then, and it just saddens me that we've lost our way when it comes to get, getting support mentally. Absolutely, absolutely. No, thank you so much for your responses, and, and I hope 
people hear it and take heed of, of your wonderful reminders. I, I wanted to move our discussion to another topic of, of major interest uh, in my own work as well as I think in our community. And um, what I love about mentalhealthformuslims.com is there's a lot of great articles specifically about relationships. Um, for instance, when love is not enough, reassessing marriage in the Muslim community. This one, you know, stood out uh, as well as others, like tired of being single, and I think there was one called Ten Things You Should uh, Consider Before Marriage. But I wanted to talk a bit more about when love is not enough. Uh, can you tell tell us more about why you and, and Sister Husai put this together? Actually, that article was a, a presentation Husai did um, for the Grand Maulid, I believe, um, and then it was so well received, we decided to put it into our article. But the main reason we focus so much on love and relationships, and first of all, they're very well received, but also there's such a need. People need to understand, people need to know what is going on. We have such a crisis in our community right now. There's so many singles looking for love, um, and they're not able to find it. There's so many people getting married with all the hopes and dreams that somebody has when they're getting married, only for that marriage to fall apart. Um, so we felt it was needed to, to reach out as many people as possible and not just the, the people that at the Grand Maulid. Love it. I wanted to highlight a couple of stats that are shared in this article. So uh, in, according to Sound Vision, a uh, survey conducted in 2010, um, you share in this article some of these stats. It says that uh, approximately uh, 16% of divorce is because of incompatibility. And uh, those who also included religious incompatibility said that percentage went up to 25%. And the other main reasons why there was a lot of divorce was 13% because of domestic abuse, 10% financial issues, 10% in-law issues, and lastly, uh, about 9% for infidelity. Okay, so approximately one out of three Muslim marriages uh, there is a high likelihood that they're going to, to end in divorce, which is staggering when you think about it, right? I, I would hate to say this, but right now, I mean, that was in 2010. I believe that I, I don't have the stats in front of me as far as the exact numbers, but the stats are rising and we are more aligned with the Western um, divorce rate of uh, almost 50% currently. Wow. Wow, very scary. Now, you, there's essential uh, advice in this particular um, article. Um, one was uh, this idea of the the distance between youth, the youth's ideas or, or beliefs around marriage and love, and the elders, if you will, okay, or the immigrant community. And one point that was mentioned here was this idea of the love delusion. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? The, the love delusion being that... Um you know, we are in the past 50 years ago, 100 years ago, love was not the central focus of a relationship. People got married for many different reasons, um, but love was not at the core. And, and now, thanks to movies, uh, music, um, the media, everything around us, we feel like or Disney, we feel like love is the answer. Love is all we need in order to to make a marriage work. And a lot of people, they're like, as long as I love so and so, that's all I need to get married. Um, and obviously that's not the case. That's why the whole article talks about that, that it, love is not enough. Love is not enough to make a marriage work. There's so much more that's needed. Um, and thinking that love is enough is like the delusion that we go into a marriage only to find out it's not enough, which, and ultimately which ends in divorce. Right. And this impacts both male and female psychology in different ways, correct? Of course. Um, little girls are brought up with the 
the prince charming coming and rescuing them and ha living happily ever after and the um, male mentality that he's going to find the perfect princess and you know rescue her and they're going to live happily ever after and there isn't a lot of thought put into what happens after the wedding what does it take to make a marriage work do I even know myself enough to be with this person and share a life with them or know this the other person enough to to you know live the rest of my life with so there's a lot that's missing in marriages and, and relationships um, with the youth I don't think it's just the youth. I just think a lot of people, and it's not just Muslims. Everybody is the is under the love delusion that love is all we need. Right. So it's basically the the popular narrative of of what it means to be in love or to find love and all this stuff. It's 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 a common narrative amongst most people. Yes. And um, so the other aspect or uh, point that was mentioned in the article was, okay, there's that going on, on on the end of this love narrative around the love delusion and perhaps unrealistic expectations, right, for things to happen like they have in these, you know, films and music and all these kind of fairy tales about, you know, happily ever after stories. But then on the other hand, you have, you know, the elders, sometimes the immigrant mentality coming in and saying, well, we have very fixed ideas about why you should get married too. And sometimes it's... It's the opposite. It's like we don't we don't care about love. We don't care about com being complimentary. We care about their skin color, what language they speak, how much money they make. Is their family a good family? Do they come from upper class? Yada, yada, yada. What would you say about that? That's kind of the other extreme and, and perhaps barrier for why um, many marriages are, are suffering. That is unfortunate. And it is true that that there's a lot of bias and there's a lot of prejudice. There's a lot of barriers that the the elders put on kids on, on what's supposed to be um, acceptable in a relationship. A lot of people only want you to stick with your own kind because they know that when you get married, you marry the family and the families are like, well, if you're going to marry the family, I got to get along with the family as well and speak the same language or have cultural. Um, yeah. We have to make Mantu together, you know, and Kabali. Right. Um, so there, it's just a very, difficult time. I mean, it was a lot easier back in our own countries and we can just pick from our tribe members and, you know, you, you kind of grew up with them. Everybody knew the families, but now everybody's scattered. It is very scary for the elderly. So I don't blame them either because they want to control as much of the factors as possible, albeit some of it can be uh, very limited and short-sighted, but they want to control as many factors as possible to ensure a long, happy marriage. Um, but Sometimes when you put two people together that know nothing about each other, they might have all the ingredients, but it might not match. They might not be compatible with each other. So they might come from a good family. They might have the light skin color. They might make the, the good money, but then they don't have the skills necessary to make a marriage work. They might have a lot of deficits that can create incompatibility in a relationship. That is not, that's the unfortunate part. I feel like a lot of the elders are not teaching their kids to be the right partners. They're just expecting them to bring home the perfect partner. Right. No, that's that's a great reminder. Another article that I, I love on the site is 10 Ways to Avoid Marrying the Wrong Person. Now, this one was written by you, correct? It was, yeah, but it was written by both of us. But it was um, also adapted from a, a very... Um, inspirational article that I had read a long time ago that I thought was very poignant and relevant to our community. Um, and it, that, that article has gone around the world. Millions of people have read it. Um, 
but it really spoke to people that resonated with people because there's so many little things that we don't think about. There's so many little questions that or little nuances that we don't think to look for when we're marrying somebody. We get so excited about somebody being interested that we forget all the red flags. We forget all the the questions we need to ask and we jump right into a relationship. And before we know it, we're so deep in it, we can't get out um, or change course. So that is a good way for people to think about things, really, really think about things before they get married. Are they kind? Are they, how do they treat other people? Uh, because how they treat other people, like even if it's how they treat the busboy or the, or the waiter is going to be how they treat you down the road. But people don't make those connections. And the first one is one of my favorites. It says, do not marry potential. Uh, can you tell us, uh, you know, one or two sentences about that? You know, if you don't really know a person and you think, well, they come from a good family or they're studying to be a doctor or so if I marry them, then I'm going to be set for life just because they have the potential to do really well. Well, they might have the potential, but a lot of people might not ever realize that potential. They might you might end up getting exactly who you have right now and not the the imaginary person you've created in your mind, the, the person that they're going to be. A lot of people also think, well, we're having a lot of problems right now. We don't get along. We don't talk to each other. We fight a lot. But once we get married, right. we'll have the best relationship. Oh, it's going to be even worse. Right. <laughs> Whatever you have now. Or what? Or let's just have some kids. That'll fix everything. Oh, goodness. Yes. <laughs> why, why is that never a smart thing to do? Some people think, yeah, let's just have children and that'll solve all our issues and problems. Why do you think that's not a wise position to have, Dr. Nafisa? Well, think about how much stress and, and pressure a kid can bring into a life. I mean, if you already don't have a solid foundation, if you're already not communicating, if you already are arguing a lot, if there's already, uh, if you're not able to manage stress well, think about adding a kid to that scenario and see how well that situation is going to resolve itself. It's, it's only going to get worse. Every symptom that you had that was a problem for your marriage and relationship, it's only going to get intensified and worse after a child is brought into it. Um, there's, that is never the solution. It has been proven repeatedly. Having a kid when you already have a lot of problems only makes the situation worse. Right. It only almost like amplifies all the current issues more. That's the perfect word for it. It does amplify the, the issues. Mm -hmm. Now, the second one here is choose character over chemistry. And this is a this is a very important one. Um, how would you define like chemistry with somebody? And uh, is that always different from from somebody having good character? Uh, how, how can we maybe make that distinction or, or what advice would you have to understand choosing character over chemistry? Chemistry is something that it's the it's what we feel that the Cupid's arrow that something hits us and we all of a sudden fall head over heels for somebody, right? We all of a sudden our, our palms are sweaty around them, our hearts beating fast. We just feel like we're so connected. We understand. We just want to be around each other all the time. But what we fail to do is we don't look at the character of that person. The thing that happens when you fall blindly um, for somebody, you're not always thinking straight. You're not, you're falling for one reason or another. And a lot of couples that actually fall for somebody and, and, and the relationship is very intense. It's the thing that got them attracted. It ends up being the very thing that ends up getting them divorced later on because they're only looking at, it's like you get tunnel vision when you have chemist, when you're focusing on chemistry, you're not looking at the broader picture. Somebody that has good character, you see that in every aspect of their life. 
you see how they treat others, you see how they live their lives, you see what's important to them, you look into their values, you're not focused on how they make you feel at that moment. Right. Now, th- this is uh, w- one of the other aspects here is, um, as it says in the article, chemistry ignites the fire, but character keeps it burning. I love that. Exactly. Now, this idea of falling in love should never be the sole reason for marrying someone, as we've discussed earlier. Now, from your all your experience um, professionally, perhaps personally, how would you define love? What do you think it needs uh, or must include to, to keep going? And uh, what advice would you have about this idea of what is love? You know, love is a very, very complicated thing. We, we hear about it so much. We say it so lightly. It is a very complicated thing. It is the most powerful drug there is. We will do anything for love, right, when it's real love. Um, love has many levels. I mean, there's love for your parents, love for your spouse, love for your siblings, love for your children, even love for chocolate, right? But unlike the Greeks, they used to use four different levels of, uh, of explanation for love. We only use that one generalized definition and everyone loves differently. So even two individuals that are supposedly in love can understand and express love differently depending on their background, their upbringing, and that can lead to a lot of miscommunication and hurt feelings. Um, couple and all, couples usually fail to meet each other's needs due to misunderstanding. Um, how the other person defines love. So even even though we all use the word love, even you and I might have totally different definitions and understanding of what that word love means, right? Right, right. So a lot of times when you when I talk to couples, you can usually sense a high level of resentment in a relationship equaling not getting the love that they need or getting their love needs met. Um, one of the best books, I think, for couples to understand what love is, is or, or what their love language is, is The Five Languages of Love. In um, that book, they, um, they kind of talk about how some people need words of affirmation, kindness, appreciation, while others might need physical touch in a relationship, and others might need gifts and quality time or acts of service in order to feel uh, happy in a relationship. So when couples are speaking the same language, they have the same understanding about love. They feel heard. They feel understood. They feel connected to their partners. So given how complicated this word love is, it's so easy to understand how easily it can be misunderstood and misused. Right. And that perhaps sheds light onto this idea of loving somebody the way you want rather than the way that they need. Right. When it should be the other way. Right. Like, let's say I'm really good at giving affection. But my wife isn't really into that. She needs words of affirmation, right? Um, but I don't really know how to do that or, or want to practice it. And in my head, I'm like, well, I'm loving you all the time. I'm always like rubbing your back and, you know, giving you kisses. I mean, why do you think I don't love you? And some people just, they don't understand. And this is probably one of the best points, right? That there are different love languages that individuals have based on their background and their experiences and expectations. And that's a, a responsibility that anybody has when they want to uh, marry somebody. Would you say that's true? But that that comes with maturity. And this is why, I mean, on the one hand, the best time to get married is when you're young, right? For the sake of kids and just appreciating and enjoying each other and enjoying your life. But at the same time, when you're that young, you don't have any clue as to what any of this means. And so it's, it's really important for individuals to understand themselves and learn to love themselves in order to know how to love somebody else. I used to, I remember hearing that when I was younger 
And the concept was so vague and foreign to me. What does it mean to love myself? Is it arrogant love? Is it me being conceited? It has nothing to do with any of that. It's a true, genuine appreciation and love for yourself. And once you do that, you can actually extend that love to other people. But how many young people have any clue about that? Yeah, perhaps perhaps one way to, to think about it is perhaps loving thyself is acceptance and compassion for the gifts and growth areas that Allah designed me with. Because because you have to also, when you love yourself, you're also like real about, yeah, I know that I'm impatient, or I know that I can be stingy, or I know that I can be, you know, neglectful, right? But I'm still okay with who I am as a being, because if you acknowledge those things, and you're trying to work towards a better you, that's also not only loving yourself and accepting who you are, but it's about being sincere. How can you be sincere to grow and become, you know, a muhsin, right? More excellent and beautiful in who you are if you haven't yet acknowledged and accepted the growth areas or the shadow side of, of who you are. And once you accept that side, then you're more readily able to accept that, those flaws and faults in other people. Precisely. And, and love them unconditionally, knowing, yes, uh, there's so much good about this person. Yes, they have these flaws, but that's what makes them all unique and makes them whole. And I love everything about them. I mean, I think it's easier for us to express that kind of love towards a pet or our kids than it is towards another person. When it comes to finding another person, uh, especially when it's when you're looking for a spouse, you want perfection in the other person, and you want you want everybody wants to bring home the most perfect creature. Not even even though they realize they themselves are not perfect. Subhanallah. Yeah, and we and we never will be. And we never will be, and neither will anybody else. And so we need to actually understand that we have to take all of somebody and then weigh the pros and cons. Obviously, if somebody has way too many flaws or their values and their characteristics are, are very different than ours, it's not that you don't love them or, or they are not good enough for you. It's just, you know, that is not a good match. Yeah. And, and this point you mentioned, which was a very good reminder, is when we're young, we don't always fully, we, we'll never grasp the full scope of, of what we're talking about. Because as you know, experience gives you knowledge and certainty like nothing else, you know. Um, but perhaps your your advice here is, let you know, do the prerequisite literacy and educational requirements. Don't just walk into marriage without a, having a clue about some of these concepts that we're talking about or that you flush out in, on your website. Um, because as you said, love is also evolving because people evolve. And uh, there's a beautiful quote by Imam Walid Basuni, which is also on the uh, article here. A successful marriage requires falling in love many times, always with the same person. Beautiful. I mean, love evolves too. With marriage, we always have to focus on the fact that love um, doesn't really develop until after the honeymoon. Right. It takes a long time for that kind of love to grow and develop. Um, so that's another thing to focus on. A lot of people are like, well, if my hands are sweaty or if my heart is beating, or if I'm if I'm getting so excited, I'm getting butterflies in my stomach, that must be love. Oftentimes that's just lust or that's um, infatuation. And that's kind of like the thing that sparks the, the flame. Yes, that starts it. But then once you you can build on that, then you can go into the, the deeper love. Right. Now, would you say that love can be an addiction? It, I, I don't think true love can be addiction. I think people can fall, uh, can get addicted to the feelings of that infatuation, that high that they get. 
um, when they initially meet people. So once that, that fades away, once the honeymoon period is over and then there's a lull and they don't know what to do with that, that's when they, some people might go into another relationship hoping to get that next fix. Okay. Now, in your work with, with couples, have you noticed any patterns or trends as far as, you know, male top needs or female top needs? Do you do you have anything to, to share about that? Um, top needs. I just feel like a lot of people are, are getting married. Uh, one of the things I would encourage people to when they want to get married is why? Are you getting married? What is the reason? What are you hoping to gain out of this? Some people, I mean, obviously some people get married for love, financial security, increasing their status, um, escape from controlling parents. Uh, but because of all that, they're not really focusing on the why. Um, if you're getting married so that you can, somebody else can make you happy or complete you, then that is the wrong reason to get married. You will be disappointed. Um, Obviously, we're, I mean, I, I can say obviously, but it's not so obvious. We are responsible for our own happiness. Just think about somebody that's always miserable, sees the world as always dark and gloomy. No matter what you do as a partner to make them happy, they will never be happy because it's an internal uh, frame of how they see the world. So they are responsible for their own happiness. And there's nothing a partner can do to bring that kind of happiness. Um, so not to feel like I have to go find the perfect person to make me happy. That is not the reason to get married. Um, and then we also need to learn to work on ourselves and love ourselves, like we said. But, you know, one thing I want to say about love and marriage is when we look for, when we dream about our perfect job, when we dream about our perfect house or the perfect car, we don't expect to just walk into a dealership or walk into an office and get that job, right? We actually have to do the work, like you were saying earlier. We have to do the training. We have to go to school. We have to get the right degrees in order to make the money, in order to, to have the life that we want to uh, have. But we don't invest that way into finding the right marriage, uh, the right partner and having the right marriage and the right relationship. Right. And and by extension, I think that's a, a, a healthy, valuable belief as Muslims and believers that you plan and Allah plans, right? It's not just about, you know, marriage always ending up perfect or just the way you wanted it, but that could be mean, that could be applied for everything else in one's life, like where I'm going to live, where I'm going to settle down, what kind of job I'm going to have. I mean, many people have experienced like, well, this was what I wrote in my journal, you know, when I was young, and turns out my life ended up being very different. Doesn't mean it's less satisfactory. But this, I, this is also a reminder that, you know, we can plan and have intentions and we have to take the means, but we also are not in control all the time, which sometimes is a big, um, uh, I would say, barrier to people's potential and happiness. This, this feeling of, I want to always be in control and be able to navigate everything exactly the way I want it, when I want it. No, the beauty of life is allowing things to unfold and and allow Allah to do his work and, and be okay and, and be open to receiving what's been what's in store for you. But there's a lot that we do have control over. Like, like I said, as far as like, if you want to be a doctor, you know, back in high school, these are the kind of grades you need to get in order to get into a good college in order to get, you know, become a graduate with a medical degree. And then you know exactly what to expect. Once you become a doctor, these are certain jobs that you can have. This is a certain amount of money you can make. So you start planning for all of that at a very young age. Um, you start planning for the kind of salary you want to have, the kind of job you want to have. You think about job satisfaction, you know, you, the career you want to have. 
we need to start put investing more into what kind of relationship do I want to have? What is required from a healthy marriage? I have this one um, couple, they're, they're Syrian, and they uh, really focus on having a, a, a more modern relationship. And they work so hard and learning and educating themselves, learning, the, learning things that, they, that are very new to them, that are very foreign to them because they never saw their parents do these thing, the, the same things. But they realize that that's what their marriage needs in order to be successful and happy. I love that they're taking so much responsibility and putting so much effort into making their relationship be the best that they can, um, that can have. So we need to do the same thing. We need to focus way before we get married on what does it require to be a, a good spouse? What does it require to be in a loving marriage? What What is a marriage? I mean, also just understanding that marriage can be hard work. Are you willing to make the work? Are you willing to commit to it and learn and, and grow? Um, so Absolutely. And, and the point you mentioned earlier and kind of circles back this idea of it's not you know, often when we want to get married, we think about what am I going to get out of it? What utility is in it for me? But we also, when we develop self-knowledge, self-love, we also start to realize, oh yeah, this is a two-way streak. I also have to recognize, well, what do I have to give? What am I bringing to the table? It's not always about what is somebody out there going to do to complete me, right? We have to be complete in and ourselves before we consider even finding a partner. Would you say that's a healthier way to see it? Definitely. Definitely. I just think we need to make that work. And it's not just about us. I mean, when you, you begin to bring two strange people, not two strange people, but two strangers, two individuals together in a relationship, there's going to be a time for you to figure each other out and understand each other. And if you don't have any clue as to what your needs are or who you are and what kind of person you are, and you don't have the integrity and the character to invest into that relationship and be honest and be consistent and reliable, then it's unfair to blame the spouse for not making you happy or making the marriage work. It can't just be one person. You both have to make that decision to get in there and really do the work. Right. And and most marriages, the first year or two is a lot about adjustment, too. Right. So if you're already adjusting to, for the first time, being with this person day in and day out, and I would argue it's the most intimate relationship you have, even more than your own parents, right? Because you have spaces with a spouse that you never have with your parents. And if you're not grounded in yourself, how are you going to handle all those curveballs or all these new things that you never knew about the person, right? Specifically, if you have, you know, Muslims, mashallah, are holding on to the conservative values of, you know, not uh, exploring all those things before marriage, uh, you're experiencing so many things for the for the first time. And as we know, reading about it is not the same as an immediate experience. Of course, yeah. One thing I do want to say, because this is I've dealt with this so many times, and it, it's heartbreaking, is the the dishonesty um, and with withholding of information of, of really valuable information before the couples get married. For example, there's a lot of people. Uh, for the most part, guys, I mean, maybe there's girls as well, that are probably homosexuals. And the parents believe that if they only get married, they'll be fixed and cured. Um, and that ruins people's relationships and people's lives. Um, there are people that are that have undisclosed mental illnesses, like severe mental illnesses, severe depression, um, severe anxiety, that the, the parents withheld that information just to, them make, to ensure a match. Um, and then that ruins lives. So when you have that, when you start a relationship with that level of dishonesty, you're not going to be able to go anywhere. Um, you cannot go up from there. 
Right. No, I, I you're absolutely right. And I can think of a few actual examples. Somebody had schizophrenia and didn't say anything about it. Uh, in another case, they did. And it, it was, of course, difficult at first, but alhamdulillah, they were able to work through it and, and you know, things went smoother than, of course, if you lied. Another situation, sometimes it's about just lying about one's age. You know, I've seen this happen before. It's like you find out on the wedding day the guy's 15 years older than he said. You know, it's like, oh, my God, how could you start a marriage like that? But, you know, this is, again, part of that fear that sometimes, you know, families have that, well, the business deal of the marriage won't go through if they know all these things about us, right? And it's like, we just want to keep this pristine, perfect image, which I would even argue is a type of cultural narcissism that exists in our communities and to some extent. Well, what are your thoughts about that? Um, yeah, I don't know about the narcissism possibly, but um, it's a, a lot of people, it's it, their, their beliefs, their, their beliefs that, once you're married, there's nothing you can do about it. Let's just do everything we can possibly do in order to seal the deal. And then uh, we're good. I mean, we, we're obviously finding that out that nowadays we do not stay married like they did about 100 years ago. People don't um, tolerate that kind of, a, you know, dishonesty in a relationship. And you can't start a marriage that way. But a lot of the, the elders feel as long as you guys are married, you'll figure it out. But... When you have somebody that's, for example, a homosexual or somebody that, that has schizophrenia, if you share that information, obviously the relationship might not ha happen. But what if somebody says, that, that's fine. You have schizophrenia. That's okay. I have a mental illness as well. We can make this work. When you, Like you said, when you disclose that then, and the, both of them agree with it, then they can make it work. Um, I have a patient who um, right. got engaged to somebody. He's not Muslim, but he got engaged to this woman. And then six months into the engagement, he found out she had uh, a lifelong illness. He ended up caring for her. He ended up marrying her anyway once he found out about the, the disease. Wow. But he ended up caring for her for 38 years. She ended up becoming wheelchair bound. He ended up being her caretaker for all those years, sacrificing everything that he uh, wanted because he loved her so much and he agreed to take that on. So it is possible for people to be together if they make if they know that information in advance. When you started with deception and lies, it's just not going to go well. Right. Now, I'll bite. Those are kind of rare cases, right? But, you know, this example, like you said, where somebody said, hey, I'm going to be honest, I have schizophrenia, but I am being treated. I'm on medication. I'm functional. Right. And they might go, well, you know, actually, I have clinical depression. And that might actually be a, a point of solidarity and, and further bonding. Right. So yeah. you never know. Right. Yeah. But but when would you bring up that kind of stuff? Because some people like I have friends who are single and they're on the, you know, quote unquote marriage market. And you got people like the first time they're talking, they're like, I want to know all your dirt. I mean, what advice would you have about when is the right time to bring up some of these very personal things? Because, of course, if we share all of these um, personal secrets, if you will, uh, on, on these uh, first dates of courtship or, or right at the beginning and, and several times they end up not working out, it's like, well, now I feel very exposed and vulnerable. Exactly. I mean, there's so much that needs... We're, like I said, we're in a very difficult time right now regarding marriage. There's a reason we're having this marriage crisis where the divorce rate is high, the number of singles is high. Um, there's we're, we're trying to figure everything out. I mean, there needs to be a level of reducing the stigma first so that when somebody actually shares something like that, they're not automatically rejected and tossed aside and said, okay, 
I'm out of here. Um, and that comes from having a, a sense of understanding that you're opening yourself up and you're vulnerable. I need to care for you and treat treat this the right way. Not necessarily that I might get married with you, but I need to handle this appropriately. Right. So we still need to see the human. Sorry. Right. That is that is an issue. We have an article on there about um, a, a woman that that basically was encouraged. You don't want to tell anybody you have bipolar. You need to keep that on the download. She's like, no, I need to be myself. Um, I had um, a few people that ended up um, divorced, but ended up with a sexually transmitted disease from the spouse lying oh to them about having something. And then that leaves them vulnerable and getting married in the future. So how, how do you share something like that? Does that mean that they're doomed to a single life for the rest of their lives because of this, this situation? Or can we be open enough to say, okay, you're being treated, you're like this, like you said, you're on medication, you're being treated. And so people can give you a chance because there's more to you than the disease. Um, but it starts with having that conversation. It starts with us feeling comfortable enough to talk about it. But it is a challenge. I mean, that is why a lot of people don't disclose the information. I don't have the answers to that. I just feel like there's so much we need to do before we can get there. Inshallah, may Allah increase all of us and, and our brothers and sisters. Um, yeah, I mean, going back to that point about narcissism, you know, I guess what I wanted to unpack that a bit more is from what I've observed, because the communitarian social repertoire aspect of many of our, you know, transactions, um, it may result in people creating this false sense of self, right? This false image that we want to put out there. And this sometimes may result in not being honest about who we really are. Does that clarify that a bit more? Creating an illusion. Right, right. Yeah. And a lot of communities, you're right, have that um, that need to create that false sense of perception in the community because it's a reflection on them um, if somebody sees them the wrong way or less than. And so they have to create that image or the false notion in order to get um, a match in the community. I know some, this one woman, she actually herself has mental illness and she's terrified of actually disclosing that for fear that her daughter might never have an opportunity to get married. Yeah. No, it's a real thing. Subhanallah. Yeah. It's not just communities. It's just individuals themselves, just the insecurity, but it is, it goes back to the stigma. It goes back to the fear. Um, there are people, I mean, I see a lot of non-Muslim couples in my, in my practice all the time that knew about each other's mental illness and they got together anyway that I, like you said, that bonded them, that, that brought them together. Um, but we don't have that tolerance in our community yet. Right. And maybe that also goes back to specific constructs about the human condition or about what it means to be, you know, a perfect Muslim that is causing these types of behavioral uh, patterns. Who knows? Right. I think there's of, of course, everything starts with the self. Right. And uh, if I believe I have to be perfect and everyone has to see me as perfect in inside and out, then I'm more more likely going to um, not be totally uh, open and honest and sincere about the very things that make me human. Right. Like my folly and my growth areas. Right. But unfortunately, those cause so much pain in relationships. Just withholding that information causes so much pain. Yeah. I mean, trust is the the uh the foundation of any healthy relationship correct right right you can go build a relationship without that the consistency reliability this is why we 
focused on character um, to really understand somebody and, and find somebody that has integrity, that has decency, that has character um, over wealth or beauty or, or physical attraction or lineage or whatever. Um, because those are, at the end of the day, that's what's going to sustain the marriage and the relationship. That's what's going to keep it going. Like I've talked to so many older couples that say, I like that he made me laugh. I like that we could talk and, and we had a lot in common. And we, cause at the, after the kids are gone, after the, the, the beauty fades, after, you know, old age sets in, all you have is that connection, the, the ability to make each other laugh, the ability to really talk to each other. Right. Now, some people might go, okay, Dr. Nafisa, I hear that, but does that mean I should just marry someone with good character and Dean and if I'm not attracted to them at all? I think attraction is important, uh, but I think that you it's possible when you – you can't have instant attraction. It's not always possible. Sometimes you might not be attracted to somebody, but once you get to know them and you see how beautiful they are on the inside – then their physical attractions can grow. I mean, I'm sure you've dealt with people where they might be physically striking at first and then you get to know them and you're just like, oh my goodness. But the opposite right. is- also You went from a 10 to a five. Exactly. <laughs> but the opposite is also true. Somebody might not Absolutely. initially be attractive to you, but because they're such great people on the inside, that is going to draw you in and that's going to make them more beautiful physically as well. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's important to explore the layers and not jump to judgment um, right away based on how somebody looks. Well, one other thing that's mentioned in that article that Usi talks about is um, he's too nice. There, he's, he, I don't have that chemistry. I don't, he doesn't make me um, – I don't feel the butterflies um, when I'm around him. And I would say that a lot of times when you feel the butterflies around a person, when you're feeling that jittery and that insecure or that – fluttery around somebody initially that might not necessarily be the best person for you because all of that fades mm. then what's what's underneath all of that i'm glad you brought that up actually this idea of you know nice guys finish last and i've met a few nice guys who are like yo what's up with this brother cream I, I thought i was a nice guy you know and i also hear sisters go oh, there's no good guys out there so it's like why do you think that is this part of the kind of love illusion and the you know hollywood narrative of like oh i want the bad boy i want the mystery i mean why do you think some sisters are drawn to that I, again it's the hollywood mystique and and just the excitement that that brings on but think about it that excitement Let's say you, you marry the, the Harley Davidson guy that rides on a motorcycle and is a fast rider. What's that, what's that going to look like five years later when you have kids and he's still a risk taker and he's doing things that are putting his life in danger and putting your family's life in danger, right? I mean, it's initially exciting, but you're not thinking the, about the big picture of what is this person? Is he going to be stable? Is he going to be a good provider? Is he going to be able to keep a, a job because he is all over the place and he, you know, he's so spontaneous and he just, um, all those characters that might create excitement initially might not be good um, good characteristics for long-term relationships. Right. And I, I, from my experience, I haven't met, I can't think of any men who are like, oh, Brother Cream, I really want a bad girl, a girl who's not sweet. You know, I always hear the, like, I want a nice, sweet girl. And, you know, and shot, you know, that's what I, I usually hear from the guy's end. So um, sisters out there, you know, if you keep being sweet and nice and, and hopefully you'll, Allah will uh, have you cross, cross paths with, with the nice guys too, inshallah. But I do want to say that a lot of, um, a lot of guys want the timid, um, 
sweet girl that doesn't have a mind of her own. There's nothing wrong with marrying somebody that is smart, that is um, opinionated, that has a mind of their own, that is strong. And uh, even our own Prophet had wives that were like that. He encouraged that. He encouraged them to have an opinion, to to share their thoughts. We don't want somebody that sits in the corner and just serves us, right? We want somebody that can engage us mentally as well. So don't just look for somebody that's just timid and sweet and there's nothing else behind that. Well, I didn't use the word timid. I use sweet and nice. But yeah, this is a very good point. So why do you think there are some guys like that? Like, do you think it's a matter for them of like, maybe they're the ones that are insecure or they're not confident enough. So they want someone that they can quote unquote control or won't challenge them. Do you think that might have something to do with it? Probably. I mean, it seems like a lot of guys are intimidated um, by somebody that is strong and opinionated or even independent make their own money. They want to go work. And so for them, they might think, well, maybe she's not going to be a good enough wife for me. Maybe she's not going to uh, be a good enough mother. But the opposite is true. I mean, think about Michelle Obama. I mean, how many of us would see Barack Obama and Michelle Obama's relationship goals? They're both strong. They're both, she's independent. She's intelligent. She's got degrees. She's an amazing mother. She does so much and she's capable of doing all that. But I don't think in, a, in an Islamic marriage, it's encouraged to be a Michelle Obama. Mm, right. And I love Michelle Obama. I feel like exactly what you said. Like I always, I always looked at them and I was like, man, they seem like such a wonderful, happy couple. And I never got this sense of like, oh, this, you know, cause guys, of course they're afraid of like, I'm not going to be on some leash and you're not going to control me. And, and, and again, maybe it's connected to these cultural notions of, you know, a man being respected and, and, you know, anytime a, a woman, doesn't agree with you or talks back or, or has an opinion, it's like, oh, you're disrespecting me, you know, but those aren't those aren't synonymous things. So there's a lot of um, unhealthy, imbalanced, I think, beliefs and constructs that we're carrying, which we really have to explore more deeply. But see, that's what comes from uh, really getting to know yourself and, and, and understanding your needs. And why do you want to get married? Do you want a wife that's just going to serve you and cook and clean for you and take care of your children? Or do you want a life partner? Because the answer will be very different to both to that question, if depending on which one you want. Right. And 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 hey, some people are happy with that, too. Right. There are women who are like, I want to be a, a, an awesome mom and, and take care of my family. And, you know, I think part of the other issue with with uh, Western society is being a mom is not credible. It's not respected. It's not honored. It's like, oh, you're just a mom, you know. Um, right. Therefore, you you don't really contribute or bring any p real purpose to the world. And I think that's one of the other reasons why I think some sisters might feel like they have to be independent and working or um, if they just want to be a wife or, or a mother one day, because that's something that would fulfill them. It's like it's not respected or even their girlfriends will be like, oh, you're one of those. W what are your thoughts about that? I agree with that. There's a lot of mommy shaming. I mean, uh, we get shamed both ways. We get shamed if we're a working mom and we get shamed if we're a stay at home mom. And th that is an issue that no. we deal with but one of the points about if I if I'm a guy and I know that I want a wife that's just going to serve me and take care of my kids and be good to my parents then then you need to put that out there and and find somebody that's agreeing to those terms don't find somebody that's open uh, that's independent and wanting to go work outside and um has have career goals and expect them to fit that role when that is not the perfect match for them right 
Absolutely, yeah. And I think a better way to put it is both male and female are in service. It's just how we're going to be in service that we have to discuss, right, and agree to. I mean, I've also met guys that are like, you know, I want my wife to contribute financially, yet he still wants her to cook five times a, a week and, and be around all day at the house. And it's like, do you, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You know, you have to, you have to be clear about what, it, what you really want in the long term. And more importantly, also remember what you're going to give because men also have have to serve their wives and their families uh, as well, right? It's not just like one person does, you know, all the service and the other one just gets to, uh, you know, it's like the love account, right? You can't expect one person to constantly withdraw and the other to deposit and uh, wonder why your account's in deficit. You know, if go, you have to you have to both deposit and withdraw in, in a healthy, balanced way. And and the old and I mean, when we were back in our own countries and and you know we lived in, in villages or close knit communities. It was easy to have support for the woman, to be able to have somebody watch the kids, to be able to to be there for, for to support the husband and have somebody to help cook and do all that. In this country, that's it's it's impossible. It's difficult to work outside the home and come home and do everything. So both partners have to contribute and, and it's important for us to change our thinking about what marriage looks like. And in fact, if we go back, the way the ideal marriage would be the way of the of of our prophet, um, because he he was that ideal husband. He worked outside the home. He encouraged his wives to go do and do other things, but yet he supported them at home. He support he helped them. He washed dishes. He put stuff away. He mended his own socks. He wasn't afraid to help out around the house. Where nowadays men are like, I'm a guy. I wouldn't work. I'm coming home. I expect dinner on the table, and that's all I'm contributing. Absolutely. No, excellent, excellent point. I'm so glad you brought that up. Number one, yes, it is sunnah, right, to be uh, a total man or a total woman, number one. Number two, that is so unrealistic to assume that I can replicate a marriage from back home or from a 100 or a 1,000 years ago and think that's going to fly, right, today. Because I always tell couples, like, give yourselves more credit. Like you said, nuclear families today, we don't have extended family. We don't have the village helping and raising the kids. We can't just go have date night because, you know, my aunt's here and my mom's here. Many of us are, are doing everything by ourselves. And that's so stressful, right? So so we have to, of course, recognize the, the context of our reality and also make sure that because we have to, um, we end up being more exhausted, I would I would say we also have to make sure that we have um, better rituals for self care and couples care too, right? How else are we going to stay afloat? And the whole I mean, the idea that we need to put the relationship above the children also goes against the mentality of of our community as well. Oh, thank you. <laughs> because. I mean, we think we put every all of our energy into our children, but in 18 years, 19 years, they're gone. They're married. They're going away to school. They're living their lives. And then what are we left with? Preach it, sister. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> no, seriously, that's r- such a good point. And I, uh, mashallah, um, very, a lot of com- – this is very interesting, ladies and gentlemen. Dr. Nafisa and I, we've actually never spoken before. We've only been, you know, um, associates through emails and, and through um, – you know, content that's sharing, etc. And subhanAllah, so many of the same ideas we're, we're reflecting here, right? Just from our own independent experiences. So that's something to, to reflect on. Um, but yeah, I love this idea of, of course, the couple always has to prioritize their health because I always say the couple is the one that we're holding the roof up over the home. 
And if the couple is the individuals themselves who are the columns are disintegrating, right. you can't expect that home and the children to get what they need because you can't give what you don't have an abundance of yourself, right? Whether it's care, love, time, presence, all of these things that we know makes a healthy family. Exactly. So Dr. Fisa, I wanted to um, take us now to our, our closing segment here. And you are actually a published author. And uh, you've got a couple of books out which have some great titles. And I thought maybe you could share some brief summaries about these books, why you wrote them, and, and why people should check them out. The first one is Steps Toward Gratitude. Can you tell us more about that? That is a motivational journal that um, I put together. It's the favorite quotes of mine that can be motivational. It has a, a place there for short and long-term goals. I encourage journaling and therapy a lot. And a lot of people don't know how to start writing in a journal, what to say, what to do. And so I always encourage them um, to start with just writing some short and long-term goals. And then go from just writing about your day, just dumping a lot of stressors and thoughts and negativity and even arguments you might want to have with somebody into your journal just pour it all in there because uh, it's a lot safer to have those arguments in a journal than to actually have it with your spouse or with your boss or with your friends um, and then it gets a lot of that negative energy out as well so you can have rational conversations with other people so that's, that was just my way of encouraging the Muslim community and community the, in general to just journal more um, and it's a journal that I use frequently. I, it, it has all my favorite inspirational quotes in there as well. I love it. It's like tracking the evolution of the soul and the person. Oh, it's a wonderful experience. I've been journaling since I was in seventh grade. And it's interesting for me to look back and read some of my journals from my 20s and 30s. And the things that I thought were such horrible thoughts or, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm thinking this way or, I, or experiences. I look back, it's like, wow, that was so Subhanallah. innocent and naive and sweet and it's just it's just a learning experience it's how we grow right no i love that that's a such a such an excellent um uh, reminder and i think there's a lot of benefit to that people you know journaling and putting uh your thoughts your emotions it's it's just a great way to organize your own evolution right and like you said refer back and be like wow and because sometimes we don't we don't even realize how much we've grown and progressed but when you read a journal entry from 10 years ago you're like subhanallah some of the things i still hold dear today right and that shows how much it's a part of my core uh, character and then other things you learn and you read and you're like wow I've mashallah come a long way Allah has blessed me with some wisdom yeah that just happens to me at the beginning of every year I encourage all my patients to, instead of New Year's resolutions to just write some goals some wishes you have for the year write some goals down that you want to accomplish this year and it's always a wonderful experience for me in December to look back and say oh wow these are the things that I wrote about I've accomplished so much and maybe not all of them. And then the rest continue on into next year. But it gives me an idea of how much I've grown personally, just from the thoughts that I have in January, uh, from January to December. Amazing. And your second book, uh, or one of your other books is Love is Hidden in Small Places. Can you tell us more about that? That is a book that I did with my daughter. Um, when she was four years old, she hid little hearts in a picture and said, look, love is hidden in small places. And I just thought Aww, that was the cool. cutest idea that um, I wanted to find other hearts hidden in different things. So we just got on this uh, 
adventure of finding hearts hidden in different shapes or everyday objects. Like I was on a search for finding a heart in a cloud for years until I finally captured it. And so we just took a bunch of pictures and combined it with a lot of love and uh, heart quotes that um, are inspirational and just a nice romantic thing, a, a nice gift to give to somebody. But it, it's paired with a lot of heart images that we've collected and some family members have contributed as well when they found heart shapes to kind of encourage us to look for the wonder and find hearts and everyday objects. I mean, when you go to Gilroy Gardens, for example, you'll, you'll find these trees that have naturally uh, shaped hearts that formed on the, on the trunk. Um, you'll find just once you look through the book, it'll inspire you to find heart shapes and they're everywhere. Once you start doing it, you'll find it everywhere. That's so beautiful. How, what would be one of the most striking hearts you found in nature? Would it, was it like a flower? Or what was one of the most shocking places you found it and you never expected you would? The one, the perfect heart cloud that I found. I, I just was looking up and there it was. I was just, it was just the perfect heart. Um, but also the heart shape on a giraffe. And, um, and then I, the skull of a bobcat on the nose, it, forms a perfect heart um just different things it was just a wonderful project that we did and um my uncle who goes to tucson frequently he ended up sending me a lot of the cactus hearts that he would find and these are all naturally forming without any filtering or uh photoshop at all just naturally forming hearts and in, in nature Mashal, it's like god's uh, emo emo uh, what are they called emocons emojis emojis from from yeah for, in nature emojis from heaven <laughs> from heaven yeah that's great that's so beautiful that should have been the name of the book what, emo emojis from heaven <laughs> Hey, second, you can do a revised publication if if that's. Uh... Oh gosh, this is such a task that I don't think I'll take it on again. But it was fun. But uh, th these photos are in the book, correct? Especially the one of the they cloud. Are. Yes, they are all in the book. Awesome, awesome. That's so great, um, Doctor Nafisa. It has been such a pleasure to have you on today, and I'm so glad we finally got to connect and, and speak. Um, any other final comments or advice you'd like to give our audience? Um, just everything we talked about, just focusing on getting to know yourself and understand your needs before getting married, focus on what matters beyond the physical and the material, um, making sure you're comfortable with the person you're with, just uh, making sure you like the, the family of the, the potential spouse. I mean, all those things, it's, I mean, we want to encourage people to get married the whole goal is not to scare people into there's so many things you need to look for but it's important to have these discussions um, another thing that I forgot to mention is there was this thing going around on the internet about 36 questions to make anybody fall in love with you uh, yeah I don't know exactly what the title was but it was something like that that you literally ask these 36 questions the the process I'm not sure would work but the questions were really good questions so it's important for us to just ask these questions just to make sure that we, we wouldn't sign any other other contract without really getting to know the details, right? But we need to be just as vigilant when we're signing the, the marriage contract, that we really know who we're getting married to, and we know that the person is honest and has good character and has good integrity so that we can start building a foundation um, with that person. And I think those are the things to keep in mind, and I uh, pray that our Muslim community finds its way in regards to marriage and partnership and divorce, reducing the divorce rate. 
So, inshallah. Inshallah. No, thank you so much, Dr. Nafisa. A lot of brilliant insights, great reflections, um, professional observations, and uh, it's been a pleasure. And I hope to have you on again soon. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. 